Well, if you could look on uh, page 11 of your worship folder, you'll find our um, sermon text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Hear God's word to us this morning from Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when He heard it. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. O Lord, as we come to your word, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus and his relationship to us as sinners. He is the Lord, the word that moves towards sinners and not away from them. There is no brokenness. There is no doubt. There is no uncleanness that can deter him. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, with faith, without faith, with a sense of our own uncleanness or unworthiness, help us to know that in Jesus Christ, you are always moving towards us and not away. And so may we hear your word, your words of grace, your words of truth this morning, and your word we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who are visiting, and, and just to remind those of you who are Regular here, um, this past fall I started a sermon series on human sexuality that really was uh, planned for nearly a year. We took a six or seven week break uh, through Advent and for the past couple weeks, but we dive back in today. And over the next four or five weeks, really, this is almost sort of like preamble of sorts. Um, Looking at those questions or those issues that become barriers to us for even having a conversation about questions of sexuality. And this morning, um, our theme has to do with the theme of the inclusivity and exclusivity of Jesus. I think the single biggest challenge, the single biggest challenge that the conversations about sexuality related to same-sex or transgender or, or divorce or really any issue of sexuality, I think the single biggest challenge is this. It's not just an argument or a discussion about ideas or doctrine or what the Bible really says. It's, it's very personal and it's very existential. It, it actually hits us very close to home and, and touches our lives and affects relationships. And so there's the feeling, and I have this feeling always as a pastor when I talk about these things, and I always have this sense of fear and trepidation when I get up and I preach and I talk about these things, of feeling torn. Torn between compassion and truth. Will we take a posture of love and compassion, or will we insist on a traditional understanding of sexuality? And I think we often feel as if we have to choose one or the other. We have to choose either 
Like we have to choose compassion at the expense of truth, or we ex- choose truth at the expense of compassion. And the reality is, is that as human beings, when we're looking at other human beings and we see persons, people always win over ideas, right? They should, at least. And I think when we even think about the person of Jesus, and I think many have a very popular understanding of Jesus as inclusive, all-inclusive, and favoring love over law. And there is a lot that is true about that. But I do want to challenge the framework, the binary, if you will, or the, the, the so-called impossible tension between compassion and truth. They're not oppositional realities. One cannot have compassion. You can't even talk about compassion without an understanding of what is true because what are you having compassion on and what does it even mean to be compassionate if you don't have a sense of what is true? And so I, I want us to reflect on this category of inclusion and exclusion with special reference to Jesus. And the more I've wrestled with these ideas and prayed through them and with the, the whole topic of sexuality broadly, the more and more convinced I am that the only solution, the only answer to this is, to use a theological term, Christological. In other words, the only answer to this is Christ. It, it, it's the only place where you can see compassion and truth held together, just like in his very person he holds together humanity and divinity in one person. And so I want us to reflect on how Jesus himself holds together these realities of compassion and truth. As John, the Gospel writer, says, the jo- Moses reveals the law, but Jesus shows grace and truth manifests that. And so how does Jesus hold together compassion, or rather, inclusivity and exclusivity? And so those are my two ideas, the inclusivity of Jesus and the exclusivity of Jesus. The very first thing to see, and it's very apparent in this story about the calling of Matthew, or he's also called Levi in the other Gospels. And every single synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this story, almost in the same form. Some of the details are different. And it's always a strategic story placed between a couple other stories that causes the Pharisees to ask questions about why is Jesus calling tax collectors and sinners? And what you see, I mean, even, those, even with a sort of um, generalized understanding of the ministry of Jesus, we have this sense that when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to completely redraw the boundaries of who's inside and who's outside. And you get the picture that those traditionally considered the insiders are the outsiders. And those traditionally considered outsiders, like the sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, Samaritans, are now the insiders. And it's remarkable, too, when you look at the calling of Matthew. Of course, you already have a calling in the Gospel where Jesus calls Andrew and Peter, fishermen, and then he calls Matthew. It's not just that Jesus calls you know, sinners and, and people like Matthew to, fo- to follow him. He makes them disciples, right? He says, I want you to be a pillar and foundation of the church. And it's significant, um, you know, t- what does it mean to be a tax collector? I think, you know, if you grew up in church, you've heard this many times, but tax collectors were widely despised people in ancient Israel. They were seen to be collaborators with the Roman Empire because they collected taxes. 
for, and I mean, Israel was basically a vassal state. They were colonized by Rome. And so you have these Jewish people like Matthew who worked for the government to collect taxes, and then they exacted, they got paid on, by how much more they took out. To put it in our sort of modern categories, the, the way that the ancient world thought about tax collectors was kind of how we think about Goldman Sachs executives during the financial crisis. Yeah, that's, how, that's basically how, I mean, betrayed the country, betrayed the people, rich fat cats. So when you think about Matthew, I mean, you know, he's not potentially a very good guy. And then he throws this party and invites all of his, his uh, wealthy executive friends to join him. And Jesus is in the midst and they're reclining. And that's what prompts the Pharisees to ask this question to the disciples. Why does your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The, Jesus has scandalously included this man, Matthew, as one of his disciples. And, of course, we could go through the Gospels. Let me just give you a couple other kinds of people that Jesus includes that traditionally are excluded. A Roman soldier who comes to Jesus, his child is on its deathbed, and he just comes to Jesus and said, come and heal my daughter. So you don't even have to come, just say the word. And Jesus heals her. This Roman soldier who would have been seen as an oppressor, as the colonizer, as the one, as an unclean one, who had a different religion, Jesus actually says these words after the, the, the Roman soldier um, says, don't come, I believe your word. Your word is good to heal. He says, Jesus, truly I tell you that no one in Israel has, have I found with such faith. Or the lepers. I don't know if you've ever seen a leper. It's actually hard to look at them. You want to turn away. Or you can't. The lepers, when they came into, they were unclean. When they came into an area, they had to shout, leper coming, so people could get away. And so here you have the story of this leper coming to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. The one who is untouchable, Jesus touches. Or the woman in Luke 7, who... Jesus is eating with one of the Pharisees and this woman who was a woman of questionable morals. She was probably a prostitute. And she's at Jesus' feet and she's anointed his feet with oil and she's rubbing her hair on his feet and kissing it. It's a very erotic scene, right? And the Pharisee is just, he's astounded that Jesus would let a sexual sinner touch him. See, Jesus is the kind of Savior that pursued sinners. He went after them. As he says, those who are well don't need a physician, but it's the sick. And when you look at the context of Jesus' time, it was unheard of that a teacher would have actually pursued sinners. These kinds of people. And so it raises this question, what exactly... um, caused Jesus to be so inclusive? What caused him to to upend, in a sense, the religious culture of his day? And there's two two things in particular that I think are are important to draw your attention to. The first one is what I will call the basis of holiness. Jesus fundamentally reorients the, the whole basis of understanding what and where holiness is. And it was based in that time on the principle of separation, 
In the Old Testament, you have this ex- extravagant purity code, holiness code, which um, function with the categories of clean and unclean. And the principle of holiness as separation really had to do with you as a, as a, as a faithful person separating yourself from unclean things. And so unclean things run the gamut from the things you ate to menstruation to actual lepers were unclean. They couldn't come. People who were maimed or blind were unclean and couldn't come into the, worship, into the temple. So you have all... You, you, sort of the purity codes and systems was a sort of vast regulatory system that ordered the sort of imagination of people about holy and unholy, the presence of God or not. And so sin and unholiness was very much understood as kind of like a contagion, like a sickness or a virus. We had somebody over for dinner the other night, and he was sick, and so he said, don't shake my hand. I don't want to get you sick, right? Because, you know, you pass germs. And that's precisely how the ancient world thought about holiness and sin was it's something that contaminates you like a virus. And so if you want to be holy, you have to separate. You've got to wash your hands, right? You've got, you know, you, you have, it's a, how people think about eating organic or G, not eating GMOs. I mean, very much that mentality is, is the sort of, I don't want to ingest that thing that will do harm to me. And so this creates this religious caste system, really, in the ancient world. And in Israel, where you have at the very top are the holy people, like the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And then you have the sort of what, in quotation marks, they say it's sinners. The sinners are basically, you know, people who just don't seem to really care, or at least they're not... Um, they're not vigilant in their keeping of the holiness codes. And so why is Jesus hanging out with all these people who aren't really serious religiously, who don't take this whole holiness thing? Now, Jesus completely wrecks this whole system. (laughs) Completely just turns it on its head. And it's not because he doesn't believe in holiness. (laughs) But there's something that's changed. (laughs) I like how Walter Wink puts it. He says, the contagion of holiness now overcomes the contagion of uncleanness. Where before, if you touched a person that was unclean, like this prostitute rubbing Jesus' feet, or this leper, or had contact with, with a Gentile, you were, seen, you were unclean. You've become infected. But here we have Jesus, and he brings holiness, and he touches, and he makes the things he touches whole, holy. His touch is like a contagion, but not of sin or uncleanness, but of holy, of holiness. The thing about all of these encounters that they all have in common with one another of Jesus' inclusion is that he is the one that everybody in some way is touched by. The basis of their inclusion, the basis of their acceptance is the very fact that he touches them, he heals them, he forgives them, he restores them, he dignifies them. And that's the beautiful thing that the God who was in heaven, the God who was away in the temple that nobody could come near, now has entered history in the very person of Jesus Christ and holiness is on the loose and it's going around and it's touching and healing and forgiving. And there's nothing, nobody's ever seen this. And that shows this other aspect, I think, that Jesus does that helps us understand how he can be so inclusive, which is he magnifies the depths of God's mercy. He magnifies the depths of God's mercy 
Those depths were always there. And yet they had been covered over with the sediment of legalism, with the sediment of custom and culture. Jesus says to, the, to these um, Pharisees, after he says that he came for the sick, not for the righteous, this is important. He says to them, go and learn. This is a little bit of a scribal slapdown. It's like, you don't know the law. You do not know the prophets. Go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a a quote that comes from the book of Hosea. It's actually Jesus in another dispute, a mere three or four chapters later about the Sabbath, will say the exact same thing. He'll basically say, you still haven't learned what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let me read you that text from Hosea in context. It's helpful to, to see, to get at the meaning that Jesus is driving at. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like that of a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn you, cut you down. I've cut them down by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And that word steadfast love in the Hebrew is this word hesed. And, and it's translated mercy in, in, in the New Testament. And the word hesed is such a rich word that is, it, it, it is mercy, but it means covenant faithfulness. It, it means it's God's constancy, God's compassion. And the book of Hosea, if you know anything about it, is this beautiful book where God, and, and also somewhat of a challenging book, where God tells the prophet Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who is going to betray you who will be unfaithful to you. And she is. And she finds herself in slavery, sex slavery, basically. And then God says, I want you now to go to this unfaithful woman and buy her out of slavery. See, the whole, the whole context of the book has to do with God as the lover of Israel. God as the faithful husband who is buying and redeeming his bride back who has been unfaithful to him from slavery and bondage. And when Jesus quotes this to the disciples, for sure he has... In mind, he says, you, 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 don't, you don't get it. Your devotion to God is empty and loveless. You're going through the motions. Your heart is not there. And, 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 the, and, the, and the reason why, the sign that it's not there is that you have no sense of the mercy of God. You have no sense that you should extend mercy to others because you yourselves have no sense that you have been unfaithful. And that you yourselves have been recipients of mercy. You can't grasp mercy because of your spiritual poverty. This is the essence of Jesus' rebuke. We can't stop here, though. I think many of you would be happy. Close it down. Let's go. This is great. That's a great word. This is where we, I think, want to stop, but we actually can't stop here, and then actually you can't understand the inclusivity of Jesus if you don't then begin to wrestle with his exclusivity, because his inclusivity is tied to his exclusivity, in fact, is the very basis of it. The inclusivity of Jesus has a costly depth to it. He is the one 
as the bridegroom, as, or as, as, the, as the husband of his people that has absorbed the unfaithfulness in his very life. You know, I think when we think about the uh, inclusivity and exclusivity of Jesus, there's a temptation for us to distort our understanding of Jesus' inclusivity. And I, I just want to address a couple of those, I think, misperceptions. And they help us to understand more deep what's at stake when Jesus does open the doors to all. I think the first one is this, is we tend to think that somehow Jesus chooses law or chooses love over law, that somehow the law now doesn't really function anymore. And I would remind you of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. This is at the very beginning. In a sense, it's meant to be a frame to read the whole sermon. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the very shocking statement right here. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus actually, um, contrary to popular belief and perceptions, doesn't lessen the demand of the law. He doesn't make it easier, especially around sexual issues. Think of this just the, from the Sermon on the Mount itself, when Jesus begins to exp- you know, teach on the meaning of adultery. He says, it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery. So Jesus has not abolished the law. He's come to fulfill the law. But there's another misperception that we often bring when we think about the inclusivity of Jesus. And it's that Jesus isn't going to judge. Like he's, at the end of the day, all make it. He's not going to judge or condemn. But again, from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let that sit for a moment. The gate is narrow. Few find it. Now, perhaps you're feeling like, okay, I gave with one hand, I just took away with the other. What's the basis of exclusion? Why is anyone excluded? I think it's helpful to take the Pharisees as exhibit A, as those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. And it's helpful to reflect on why exactly they're excluded. And it's not simply because they're mean to those who need mercy. That is actually a sign of a deeper problem that they have. And I think what you have to see is that, in a way, the Pharisees exclude themselves from the kingdom of God. It's not, because, it's not that they failed to keep the law, that they are excluded. Everybody fails. That's part of the point. Jesus comes, everybody's sick. The real problem of those who are sick and don't recognize themselves as sick. And that was a problem of the Pharisees. It's, and their, their lack of mercy towards others was a sign that they didn't see that they needed help themselves, that they themselves were sick. And that's why they rejected Jesus. So there's this very counterintuitive 
truth when you reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus or the problem of the Pharisees. It's not that the Pharisees had a really, really high regard for the law, a high view of the law. It's actually the opposite. And um, J. Gresham Machen makes this really insightful statement. He says, a low view of the law always brings legalism in religion. A low view of the law always brings legalism in religion, and a high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. Why is that? Think about this. If you, if you, see the Pharisees thought they could keep the law. They thought they had it nailed. And what they didn't realize is how much more demanding it was. It was all outward. It was all external. This is how we make sense of Jesus' statement that if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, when we have a low view of the law, our tendency is to think that we can keep it. We can make it happen. But if you have a sense of the law's weight, of your imperfection in the presence of God and before the person of Jesus, you are broken. You realize that you need help and that you can't jump through the hoop. See, the grounds for inclusion, one of the things that you see in all of the stories, all of Jesus' encounters with people who receive him is a recognition of their sickness. They fundamentally understand that they are the patient and he is the doctor. <laughs> that is the fundamental grounds and basis for Jesus. And it's demonstrated through faith, through repentance, and humility before him. And these are all the things that the Pharisees lack no faith, no repentance, and no humility. The exclusivity of Jesus at root is not his rejection of us, but of our rejection of him. The exclusivity of Jesus is not his rejection of us. It is our rejection of him. It is our rejection of him as the doctor and us as patients who are on our deathbed, friends. You know, there's a couple ways that I think we manifest this in our lives. A refusal to see our failure, our sickness. I, I think there's a very traditional way that we've been talking about of being a Pharisee, which is basically to, to not see that I need the grace of God in my life, to think that I can get it. And it, this manifests itself in really subtle ways in our life. One of the ways is generally to think, you know, at the end of the day, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm not perfect, but I think all my good works add up and I'll be all right. I mean, this is a very common view, but actually the one I want to reflect a little bit deeper on with you is, is one I, I want to call the postmodern Pharisee. The postmodern Pharisee. See, the, there's a way that we come to Jesus or we come to the Christian faith and what we actually want from Jesus and what compassion is for us is to redefine our sin as not sinful. That's often what's going on in the conversations about compassion. It's, it's actually not... Because the biblical categories of compassion always presume not innocence and deserving by those who receive it, but actually guilt. When we talk about compassion, usually we think these are the people who deserve it. That's why all these self-righteous Pharisees are justly condemned. This is why actually Matthew would not make it into our inner cycle of disciples, inner circle of disciples. See, there's, there's a way that, and, and, and there's many good things about this, that we kind of live in this culture of authenticity where 
more and more we have very little patience for people who are exter- externally religious and, and pious. We see them as these Pharisees that are exclusive and are judgmental and hypocritical. And we're broken and we're authentic. And I'm going to just, I'm going to be a sinner. This is what you get. And you know, there's, there's a lot of good about that. It's, you know, it's good to be open and vulnerable, but oftentimes we do more than that. We actually, we actually make our brokenness, our screwed upness, a kind of a virtue in which we exalt in to where we're like, I'm just broken, man. This is who I am. You've got to accept me for who I am. You've got to accept, you as, uh, accept me as a broken person. And for sure, there, there's a lot of good about us you know, receiving. And, and that's the thing. Jesus doesn't put preconditions on who comes to him or who he goes to. He goes to broken people. But the point of going to a doctor is not to be affirmed in your sickness. It's actually to be healed. Right? And, and you know, I think that one of the signs that Phariseeism in our life is, is, is operative is, is, a, is a tendency to, to build our identity on being um, better and more righteous than other people. This is a sure sign. And, and um, you know, because the Pharisees are always looking down on others. Um, and, and, and this is how, in, in many ways, identity is built on how I'm different from the other and how I'm better than the other. And you can do this as a, a, a traditionally religious person looking down on sinners, but you can also do this as a kind of broken, authentic, spiritual person that looks down at your nose at people who are really religious, who don't have real big problems in their life, people who seem to have it all together, and can you perceive them to be always judging you. But you're authentic, Right? See, that, that's, a, that's a form of exclusion in the same way. I love the picture of compassion we get, compassion and truth that we get when we look at the story of the woman at the, the well from John 4. This story is perhaps, the, the woman at the well is the ultimate outsider, the ultimate other, the ultimate sort of, she's one, she's, she's a Samaritan. I mean, she was, she's like, She's the most despised nationality that any Jew could have. They would, the Jews hated Samaritans more than they hated Romans. <laughs> so she's a Samaritan, and Jews usually would make a point out of going, you know, taking the long road to avoid going through Samaria or those cities that are Samaritan. But she's also she's a woman, and in public, men and women generally don't just interact. But she's also, as we discover, as we read the story, she's got a sexual history. <laughs> and Jesus comes to her and he, he asks her for a drink and he engages her in conversation. And, and he is this incredible border crossing story. Incredible story of Jesus' inclusion and his going to somebody who is an ultimate outsider. And when his disciples come, it's like jaw drop. Like, what in the world? I is Jesus talking to this woman. This is totally out of bounds. Even those, that, those guys who, you know, have been recipients of grace are now like, oh, this has gone way, way too far. Because there's always somebody, right, to our left that doesn't des- deserve mercy, right? <laughs> Even if we see ourselves as broken. And this woman was at the very bottom. And Jesus engages her in a very serious conversation about the meaning of worship and actually the very real source of life and water in her life. And there comes this moment where she's not getting it. They're talking about spiritual life and water. And, and then Jesus says something that I like to call a how dare you Jesus moment. Where he says, um, well, why don't you go get your husband? <laughs> she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know you've had five. 
Now stop up. I mean, here we have compassionate Jesus going across the bound. He's engaging this woman. He's, he's allowing her to serve him water. And then he begins to probe into her sexual history. How dare you, Jesus? That, I mean, seriously, have you ever had that moment when somebody, a friend, or maybe not a friend, puts their finger on something in your life? And it's like, that was completely out of bounds. That is completely inappropriate for you to go there. But Jesus goes there. He has to go there, friends. He has to go there. You have not encountered Jesus. You have not met the real Jesus. You have figurine Jesuses, American Jesuses, but you have not met the real Jesus. If you have not had a how dare you kind of moment where he puts his finger on something that you don't want to talk about, and she doesn't want to talk about it. She changes the subject. Friends, Jesus comes to us as we are. He comes to us as we are. Be for sure of that. You don't have to clean yourself up to go to Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up to come here. He accepts you as you are, but he won't let you stay as you are. He will not let you stay as you are. That is not the gospel. That is not what a physician does. He doesn't let you stay in your sickness, in your suffering, in your misery. He changes it. Sometimes uh, people will um, ask me the question, what does your church believe about homosexuality? Like, usually this is like a getting-to-know-you conversation. Like, they want to assess. They want to assess. I refuse to answer that question. I said, that's the wrong question. The right question is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to respond to that call, follow me? Friends, we cannot remove these. We can't remove, you can't. See, at the end of the day, whatever we, whatever we think about sexuality, I mean, if, it, it, has to, it has to be understood in relationship to the person of Jesus himself as the one who embodies grace and truth. It is personal. It is always personal. But it's not just personal from how we feel. it. It's personal in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ himself. It's never abstract. It's never just a conversation about theology or interpretation of texts. It's about Jesus. And, and let me just close with, when you look, Jesus always enters into your mess. He enters into my mess. Wherever he finds us, he will come into the mess. And when he comes into the mess, he comes with a physician fully equipped to heal, to dignify, to restore, to forgive. You look at this encounter of Matthew, and it's just so straightforward. Jesus says, follow me. And I like what Luke says, how Luke describes it. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a booth. And it said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. It's the same with the disciples early on, with Peter and Andrew. And it's just, Jesus says, follow me. And they just, they follow. And you, you wonder, like, who, what, how does that happen? Like, you know, surely there was more conversation than that. And, you know, I, I have to believe there probably was. But I think the gospel writers are trying to make a very important point here. And, I, and this is a very, very important for us to get. When Jesus comes and says, follow me, there is power in that call. There is power. It's like a nuclear power. When Jesus, when, and this is why you have to come to Jesus. And forget about all of the debate. And you have to come to Jesus. You have to hear his words. Follow me. And in that call is the power to follow. Levi, this rich man, 
It just says he, he left everything. He left everything. See, see if you, you, you know you've met Jesus because you're willing to give up everything. Anything. If there's one thing you're like, this is the one thing, Lord, I can't, I can't give up. I can't go there. You'll be like the rich young ruler. When Jesus said, he, he looked at him and he loved him and he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and he couldn't do it. And he went away dejected, friends. Friends, there is power in the call of Jesus. Like Hosea, Jesus absorbed the cost of our own unfaithfulness. The exclusivity has to do with the fact that he's the only way through. He's the one who absorbed the cost of our own unrighteousness, friends. So let us not forget that when we come to him, the call comes with the power that liberates us to follow him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we pray that you would give us the ears to hear the simple words of Jesus to follow me. And may those words, like a nuclear reaction in our hearts and souls, change us and transform us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.